Well, church, um, I'm, I'm hoping you're having a, a great holiday weekend. Um, we, uh, we, we love freedom, and um, you know, we often celebrate in, in different ways, whether it's fireworks, cookouts, family gatherings, uh, sleeping in, just being home. Um, whatever it may be, I hope and pray you're having a safe and, and, and good weekend. Um, you know, I, there, I think about all the different freedoms we have. And uh, this morning in Faith and Unity, we got to meet freely. We get, we get to worship freely. And we got to celebrate God's goodness. And in unity and peace, we were able to remember the ultimate sacrifice of what Christ did for us. Uh, that's an incredible spiritual freedom that we have. And I was thinking about, you know, all that Christ did for us on the cross. Um, and it's just amazing. Right? However, here's something I need to make a statement of, and I'm sure you all aware of this, but with freedom comes responsibility, right? Uh, and, I, and, you know, right now I think about, like, oftentimes we, we sit there and think, hey, I'm free. I can do whatever I please because I have freedom. But we forget that our freedoms also are attached to responsibility, and, and we need to be careful about that. And I, I shared last week on the topic of abortion, and I know some of you were like, some of you are like, I'm glad we talked about it. Some of you are like, we talked about it? And, um, and I felt like when I got done last Sunday, it's like there's still a little bit more I need to share. So I'm going I'm to tag on a little bit more this morning. And then I'm going to explain to you why I was not done. Or why we, we need to now be solid on this. Um, I, I think the argument sometimes you may hear in relation to freedom and abortion is you hear that phrase, my body, my choice. And we wonder... You know, that whole thing about, well, I've got my rights, right? I, I've got my freedom to, to do what I, whatever I want to do because it's me, male or female, man or woman. You know, we, we, we say I can do whatever I want to do. And, and I'm, as a church, we believe that God's word is our foundation. And it is trustworthy. It is true. We believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. And our foundation, our truths on his word in that statement is where we build our life. So we, we build up from there. And which means as a Christian, not talking about those, again, who don't believe, okay? Because there's people that maybe don't believe in Christ. You don't believe anything I've said so far. So maybe this doesn't apply to you. But if you call yourself a Christian, we need to remember this, the phrase, my body, my choice, conflicts with God's word. Because God says our body belongs to the one who created us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. As, as a Christian, that is biblical truth. I build my foundation on this, so my freedom, there is responsibility. And, and my body is, belongs to God. He paid for it. And so, specifically, within the body of a woman, a miraculous and amazing thing takes place. The creating of of another human being, intricately designed, formed in the image of God, a masterpiece, God's 
workmanship. Ladies, I think that's amazing. And within a woman is, is God's creation. Within you is God's creation. And that creation within you has its own DNA separate from you. It has its own body. It is a body within a body. That is amazing. And therefore, knowing that someone else is in you, we protect it because it has value. And I was thinking about what I shared last Sunday, and it, and it, may, not matter, it, it, it may not matter to you. If you don't believe in God's word, then what I said probably doesn't matter to you. But if you call yourself, again, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, God's word is ultimately our authority in life. The Bible reveals us to that there is a God who loves us. And then there is sin, rebelliousness against God that separates us from God. And then that God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile that relationship so that we can have a new life in Christ. That's the gospel. That's God's word. And then being new in Christ, having that new relationship, we're like, how do I live this new life? How do I live out my salvation by faith? It is through his word. God's word becomes the foundation for our life. He shows us in his word that he is creator, that, that he is all powerful, and that we are created in his image. Even if you don't believe the Bible, Science would agree with the Bible that life begins at conception in the womb. Science believes that. You know, what we didn't know in 1973 when some laws were made, scientifically, we know now. Even common sense would agree with, with this statement that life is valuable. So take the Bible out. Take science out. How about just common sense or conscience? says, you know, life is valuable. Think about this. You look at the picture of those that have been wounded or killed in war, especially recently in Ukraine, and your heart hurts for people. Have you ever watched somebody yelling at a little kid almost to the point where they're abusing and maybe they even physically strike, and you're just, you're like righteously angry because like that shouldn't happen. Why is that? Because our conscience, our common sense tells us that Life is valuable, and we should treat each other with value. Unfortunately, even when science and common sense and conscience doesn't make sense, there's other things out there that confuse us. The laws of this land, unfortunately, confuse us. Uh, for example, most of you probably know this, but in all 50 states of the United States of America, there are laws protecting animals from human beings. If you kill a puppy, you're probably going to go to jail. All 50 states have laws protecting animals. However, it's different for a baby. Currently, at 38, 38 states have laws against homicidal, um, fetal homicidal. 29 states have fetal homicidal laws that apply to the earliest stages of pregnancy, such terms as conception, fertilization, or even post-fertilization. Therefore, here's what happens. If, if a pregnant woman is on her way to an abortion clinic and a drunk driver comes in and hits her car and she's injured but she will survive but the baby within her dies, the driver of the car will be arrested, prosecuted, and sentenced. 
for homicide because the baby inside died. Now remember, she's on her way to the abortion clinic. Now let's say she's on her way to the abortion clinic and there is no accident. She makes it for a small fee. She basically pays the doctor to suck the baby out of the womb and there's no laws broken. Do you see how this can be confusing to many people? So even when the laws are confusing or there's conscience or there's common sense or science, we sit there and we say, so how do we make decisions? Where is, where is truth? Where do we find help? That's why as, as a church, as a church, you know, I want to come back to this issue because I think as a church, I'm not sure if I clearly stated it. If I did, I'm going to state it again. I think as a church, this is where we stand on God's word and say we can still be a help to those who are hurting. First, and I'll say this, let's pray, first of all, for a loving and right attitude for us. Not a judging attitude. Not a looking at somebody saying, I can't believe you stand here. I can't believe you made that decision in your life. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you posted that. Instead of a judgmental attitude as a church, we need to pray that we have a loving attitude towards others. We love God first, and then we love others, right? We love God. Because we love God, we're going to love others. So let's pray for the right attitude as we as Christians. And we understand with every decision that's been made in the past by whomever it may be, they are in, probably in a lot of pain and there's some confusion that's surrounding their, their decision making. For those who are struggling trying to figure out what to do with an unwanted pregnancy, we as a church should be there to help provide some hope and some answers. Whether it's counseling, adoption, fostering, walking alongside somebody who doesn't know what to do, a scared mom, the church should and can help. We are in no position to point our finger in judgment at people. Instead, we uh, offer our hands to them and say, how can I help you? This is probably a challenging time for you. How can I pray for you? Instead of condemning, we need to be loving. And because there's understanding that with abortion, sometimes there comes a lot of pain and shame and they need somebody to talk to. As a church body, we need to walk alongside those who are hurting. And so here's the thing, church. If you are here or you know somebody or maybe they're watching online and it's like, I need to talk to somebody about because the decision that I made in my past was painful. Maybe you are an abortion survivor. Maybe something else happened in your life concerning this whole topic of abortion. There's a group of ladies that are going to start meeting. Uh, they're going to do it in confidence. So I can't even tell you what day they're meeting or what time. All I can do is direct you towards Joy Frucci, who is our church counselor. Uh, her information's in the bulletin. If you need to reach out to her, she will keep your name in confidence and she'll let you know when the group's going to meet. Because again, as a church, we want to provide hope and healing uh, for those that are in need. Now you've heard me say as, as a Christian, though, obviously we stand on God's word in obedience to, to him in all situations that we face in life. And we are to see others as those who have been created in God's image. Again, masterpieces. I think this past week in vacation Bible school, it was wonderful that the truth of that was so much, uh, I think, heard to our kids. They heard that over and over, that they are masterpieces, God's creation. But we are created with equal value, and we need to treat one another with incredible value. So we stand on what we believe to be true, and here's the thing. When we stand on what we believe to be true, you will have conflict with other people. You might have dispute. Because what you believe about God's word is very much against the grain of what this world says. So you will have people question you. Why are you believing that? Why would you say that? 
and then you'll have maybe a false accusation made against you. You might have a, a, a conversation that turns into an argument. You may lose friendships over this. And the thing is, we don't want that. We want to, though, be ready. Because, again, you can't convince people. All you can do is know what you believe, share what you believe. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15, 16, we've been talking about this. In our hearts, we know that Christ is Lord. And, and we need to be prepared. When somebody says, why do you believe you leave? What do you believe? We need to be prepared and ready to give them a reason. And we're not throwing it in their face. We're not getting argumentative. Do you see how it ends? With gentleness and respect. We're going to have these conversations. And people may walk away from those conversations and you feel like, I don't even know if that mattered. But it does matter that you know what you believe and why you believe and why I say my beliefs come from God's word. And you might say, well, Rex, you said a couple weeks ago, why should we believe God's word? What good is God's word to us in understanding all that's going on in this world? We need daily help, church. And here's the thing. The only help that you're going to find is through God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit works through his word as well. So when we're opening up God's word, he is breathing life into us. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's an incredibly awesome scripture. We're going to go then to Psalm 119. But first this verse where it says, All scripture is God-breathed. And I remind you, in the book of Genesis, when God created Adam, he piled the dirt together, and then he breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and life was formed and created. God breathed. You don't see that terminology used anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament into the New Testament. You get the scripture and you see, ooh, God breathed. And we, it's almost like when you open up God's word, it says when God breathed into Adam, God's breathing into you. He's breathing life, giving, power, discernment, teaching, equipping, correcting, rebuking. He's pouring it into us. There's reasons why after a Bible study sometimes or your own personal quiet time, you close up the Bible and you're like, oh, this is good. Because God just breathed into you. And he said it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, every good conversation, every good moment when somebody approaches you and say, hey, you're a Christian. What do you believe about this? And in that moment you say, God... Help me say the right thing. Help me to be true to your word, what you say. And if you aren't sure, you just let them know that. And then you get back with them. But you have a conversation and you share God's word. You don't strike people with God's word. God's word is breathed into us and empowers us. And to have that calm discussion with somebody who doesn't believe or seeking answers we reply on God's word and through his Holy Spirit leading through his word. Grab your Bibles now and, and turn to um, Psalm 119 if you want. I, I've said God's word is our foundation. And some you know, others will say, well, can we trust God's word? And I'm going to give you two, two specific reasons why you can trust the authenticity of God's word. Because when it comes down to it, we, we look for authentication. Like, is it true? And historians determine authenticity by comparing two things. The manner of the, uh, the number of manuscripts recovered and then the time gap in between the original autographs and the copies of these manuscripts. So if you were to stack ancient documents and stack them up uh, vertically that have survived the day, the average classical writer's documents would come to about four feet tall. 
If you were taking the original manuscripts um, of the New Testament, it would stand 5,280 feet tall. Do you see the gap between classic history writing and God's Word? Okay, huge gap. Now, the next thing they do, though, is out of these 2,400 New Testament documents, I'll put up on the scripture graph on the screen here. To your far left, you have a very tall blue line. That's the New Testament, okay? All the other little ones to the right of it, all the really small ones that go across the bottom, those are all classic writings. One of the bigger ones that sticks up is about uh, the book of uh, is Iliad, which is like 1,900 copies of that. Okay, that's, that's the closest. 1,900 is the closest you get to as far as classical historical writing. Then you got the New Testaments, about almost 24,000 of those documents. Now, here's the thing. The dating takes place sort of like, like this. The time gap with original dot manuscripts of the first copy, New Testament, they measure it in years and decades. In the classical writers, they, they measure it in hundreds of years because that's the, the gap. So if you were to say the New Testament authenticity, I don't believe it's correct to be true, here's what happens. You have to toss out every classic history document that's out there. Every one. Because if you don't think the New Testament is real, you have to toss out everything else. Everything else. Secondly, here's the other thing. Uh, fulfilled prophecies. If you understand, uh, basically prophecy, a prophecy is something that was written and then came true at a later date. And you look in the scripture, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by one person. Jesus Christ. Over 300 of them were made more than 400 years prior to his birth. Now let's just pick out, out of those 308, okay? We'll pick eight fulfilled prophecies out of the Bible. Things that were talked about Jesus 400 years in advance and then came true 400 years later. Let me put four of them on the screen. Uh, he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born to a virgin. He would be a forerunner. Uh, I'm sorry, a forerunner would announce his arrival. That's John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness. He would ride victoriously into Jerusalem on a young donkey. You remember, we probably remember all those things, right? Prophesied hundreds of years prior, okay? Now, let me give you another four, because I told you eight, right? He would be betrayed by a friend. He'd be crucified, but his bones would be left unbroken. He would die 483 years after the de declaration to rebuild the temple in 444 B.C., and he would rise from the dead. Eight prophecies that basically say this is going to happen. 400 years later, they happened. What are the odds of that actually happening? We say, well, that was a coincidence, right? I, I can't believe it. That's just a coincidence. They've probably been, that's probably happened with other people, right? No. But with Jesus, yes. Here's where statistics and probabilities come in. And using information uh, from the American Scientific Affiliation, Professor Peter Stoner states the probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by one person is 10th to the 17th power. So that's basically one in 100 quintillion. One in 100 quintillion. Now, if you can count the quintillion, I'm impressed, okay? I, I, no clue, right? So trying to understand this, Josh McDowell came up with a brilliant picture that I've shared before. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the state of Texas, huge state, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to spread out 100 quintillion silver dollars across the whole state, okay? First of all, you're like, 
I'm just going to go put them in my pocket and then leave, right? So 100 quintillion silver dollars across the whole state, two feet tall, and you're going to wade your way through, and you're going to stop, and you're going to take a silver dollar with a Sharpie, you're going to make a black X on it, big black X, boom. Then you're going to throw that back out into the pile, and you're going to step back, and we're going to take a blender the size of California and just blend the whole state of all these silver dollars. They're getting mixed up everywhere. Now we're going to blindfold you and just start you at El Paso and just have you start walking east. You can stop anywhere in the state you want. You can go north, you can go south, wherever you want to go. But when you eventually stop, you're tired, you're in two feet of silver dollars, blindfolded, you reach down and you pick up the silver dollar with the X that you marked on it. That's one in 100 quintillion. Okay? None of us have that kind of luck. Sorry. There is no coincidence. So when I take these two things, historical documentation, fulfilled prophecy, two reasons why I can simply trust the Bible right there. That's enough. Anywhere else, with anything else that we were talking about, you'd only need one piece of evidence. You're like, I'm in, right? How about two? How about eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? There's over 500 witnesses there. You're in a court of law. You're good with two witnesses, maybe three, four. Oh, absolutely. Five, slam dunk. 500 witnesses? True. It's got to be true, right? So some argue, though, that there's, but, but there's moments of contradiction in the Bible, and sometimes it's just confusing. You ever read through the Bible and get confused? If you're in here this morning and you've never found anything confusing in the Bible, then maybe you've not read the whole Bible. Okay? I've read through it multiple times, and there's times I get there and I'm like, oh, I can't preach on that one. <laughs> Don't want to touch that one. Right? And then we have to understand there's, there's things culturally in the scriptures that are like culturally not so today. So when you read it, it just doesn't make sense. And when we look at the contradictions, they're really not contradictions. They're just reported differently, and, and you start going to the other theologians, and things get explained. It's like, oh, that makes sense. But we sit there and think, well, then, oh, I've heard that verse. Doesn't that mean that? People take verses out of context. So with those kind of things, sometimes it's hard for us to accept the truth of the word because of all these other things as well. But we come back to this church. Let me say this. God's word is truth. It's his spoken word. It's just in written form. It's, it's not the good book. It's God's book. It's not a bunch of words. It's God's words. When you open it up, you are reading the words of God. David may have written it. Paul may have penned it. But God spoke it. In your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. Even, even the psalmist in 119, uh, verse 27, I love this. He was like, help me understand the meaning of your commandments. That might be a prayer you need to pray when you start every morning with your quiet time. God, help me understand the meaning of your, of your commandments. I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. I want to dig into your word. I want to know you. Help me to understand it. We know God's word is, is foundational. It's, it's trustworthy. It's life-changing for those who pursue it. And so in Psalm 119, I want to read this to you. It says this, starting in verse 1. Happy are the people of integrity. You're full of joy. Who follow the law of the Lord. Happy or joyful are those who obey his decrees and search for him with all their hearts. Verse 3. They do not compromise with evil. They walk only in his paths. You've charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your principles. Then I'll not be disgraced when I compare my life with your commands. 
when I learn your righteous laws, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your principles. Please don't give up on me. Now this chapter is broken into multiple sections and a lot of times they're just verses of eight. And here's that first section. And in this first section, I was, what came to my mind when I read this was what I witnessed just recently in the game of dodgeball. A bunch of kids playing dodgeball, throwing balls at each other, having fun. It was, it was fun and it looked like they were having fun. Then I noticed that some of the kids didn't know the rules. They didn't know all the rules. So there was kids that were getting out that were staying in and there were kids that were staying in that, that went out that should have stayed in. It was like, you know, and you could see some of the kids, they knew the rules and they were frustrated with the kids who didn't know the rules. Because the kids who didn't know the rules, they were like, we're just having fun. I didn't know that was a rule. I'm just going to keep playing. And, and it, it created a little bit of like, mm, a little bit of angst towards those guys. Like, this is the way the rules are and you're not following it. Right? And, and I, I was thinking about that, sort of the way God it works with God. It's like he gives us rules and standards for how to live. But here's the thing. There's people that are like, I don't want to follow those. Matter of fact, I, 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 don't even, I didn't even know that was a rule. I didn't know I should be living that way. And then when they find out they should be living that way, then there's some that are just rebellious, like, yeah, I know I was out, but I'm staying into play. They make up their own rules. And we also know that those moments, as we're looking here in Scripture, it's like, as I'm trying to follow these commands, I'm probably going to fail. Did you see what he said at the very end there? Please don't give up on me. He knows. He's like, I love your commands. They bring joy to my life. They give me direction. And, 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 when, and when we're following the rules, everybody's playing the game. It seems to go a lot better, right? But I know I'm probably going to mess up. Don't give up on me when I mess up, God. Don't give up on me. He says, I will obey your decrees. And I was thinking about this church. I, I want to have the right conversations with people. Uh, and I want to talk to them about what's going on in this world. And here's the thing. And I, I don't want to live by God's commands as I'm in this world. But if I don't read his word, I won't know his commands. I can't follow his commands if I'm not reading his commands. Read, uh, let's go to Psalm 119. Let's read verse 9. Pick up there. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I've tried hard. I've tried my best to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your principles. I've recited them out loud and all the laws you've given us. I've rejoiced in your decrees as much as is riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your principles and not forget your word. There's, there is, as we said now, those first eight verses, there's, there's joy, there's happiness in, in knowing God's word and following God's word. But here's another thing we learn about God's word. It helps us to stay pure. And some of us are like, well, maybe we need to start with the question, do I want to be pure? Well, we know God is pure. God is pure from sin. He is holy. And Scripture says we are to be holy as God is holy. So we should pursue. We should strive to be holy as God is holy. I want to be pure. I want to make the right decisions. I want to do the right thing. How do I do this? Scripture says what? It's through His Word. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying God's Word. We, we pray. We read them. We say, God, Help me to obey. There's that obedience again. We, we pray that we don't wander from his commands. See, the Bible is more than just uh, history, poetry, encouragement, nuggets of wisdom. 
There's commandments in there too. And it's full of commands in which we're like, I better make sure I'm following these commands. I better not wander away. And the psalm is like, help me not to wander away. Here's the commands. I need to follow them. Look at verse 12. He prays for a teachable heart. As a coach, I love working with kids who are coachable. Okay? A lot of coaches out there, a lot of teachers out there. You like working with people who want to learn, right? And, and what does the psalm say? Give me a heart that wants to learn. Maybe we need to pray that. We recite it out loud. We rejoice. And look at verses 14 and 16. Having the right attitude and opening up God's word is a must. Instead of, I better open up my daily devotions. I got to go to church and hear the Bible read. Horrible attitude. I'll just say it. If that's the attitude you bring to the word, you will get nothing out of it. And it's hard because sometimes we have a, something rotten going on in our life. And it's like, I know I need to be in the word right now, but I'm not feeling it. I, how many of us are, right? So you pray, God, soften my heart right now. Give me the right attitude. I want to delight in your word. I want to rejoice in it. Help me to study it, verse 15. We reflect on God's ways, it says. And it's important when you look at Scripture and it says to reflect on His ways. What does that mean? Ask God, why is that there in Scripture? Why, why is that there? If, if I was driving on the road and I saw a guardrail along the side of the road, I'm thinking, I wonder what that guardrail is there for. Is it along the side of a, maybe it's along the side of the river. And it's like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a big drop off. Or if I'm up on a mountain, it's like, oh yeah, I don't want to go over that because that, that ravine is deep. See, like that guardrail was there to protect me, to keep me from, from plummeting to death or something severely wrong, right? God's word, sometimes it's like, it's like guardrails. It's like it keeps us from going into something that could critically hurt us, spiritually maim us. And it's like, God, why is that there? Why, why am I supposed to be obeying this command? Why are these precepts written the way they are? And God's like, because I don't want you to go off the edge. That's why that's there. Reading on in, in Scripture, let's look at verse 17. Be good to your servant, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. I'm only a foreigner in the land. Don't hide your commands from me. I'm always overwhelmed with a desire for your regulations. You rebuke the arrogant. Those who wander from your commands are cursed. Don't let them scorn and insult me, for I've obeyed your laws. Even princes sit and speak against me, but I'll meditate on your decrees. Your laws please me. They give me wise advice. It's like, a, again, a foreigner looking at a map saying, what direction do I go? Which route should I take? What sights should I see? What should I avoid? That's what God's word does as he's reading this in verse 19, verse 21. Again, looking like a, that verse, look at the map. He's like, I don't want to wonder. I don't want to go off path. I don't want to go off trail. I know what the arrogant do. The arrogant, they're self-led. I got this. The rebellious, they do it their way. I'm going to do it this way, right? And even leadership, these, these princes are opposing the lifestyle that he's trying to seek. It's like some do their own thing, some are rebellious, and some in leadership are telling me no. And it's like, God, I, help me not to wander. Because all these other people are doing their own thing and telling me to do things. What do you want me to do? Help me to stay on track here. Look at verse 25. I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. 
I told you my plans and you answered. Now teach me your degrees. Help me to understand the meaning of your commandments and I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. I weep with sorrow and encourage me by your word. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instruction. So in, in these short verses, we discover that God's word, it revives us, it directs us, it encourages, it empowers us. It's like, this is good, right? And by the way, I'm like zipping through this really quick. I would encourage you, take this psalm over the next six days and just dwell on them. Just, just take your time. I'm going through these really quick because I just want to make some points here. Look at this next verse. I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. I cling to your laws. Lord, don't let me be put to shame. I will pursue your commands for you expand my understanding. Those last four verses are like a, it's like a proclamation of all that is true about God's word. God, I'm making a proclamation. I'm choosing to be faithful. I am determined. I will cling. I will pursue. That's basically a declaration on my end saying, this is all you're doing for me, God. This is your word. Now what am I going to do? See, a lot of us are like, thanks, that was, that was a good read. It's not just about reading it. Now we've got to do something with it. Be determined, be faithful, cling to it, pursue it. What command is God challenging you with? Look at verse 33 to 40. This should be just like a, the morning prayer, how you start off scripture, and I'll close with this. Teach me your decrees, O Lord, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I'll put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that's where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. God's word is true. It can be trusted as we look through the authenticity, the documentation, the fulfilled prophecies, and then we open up and we see what God's Word does. It provides purity for our life, and we must make a proclamation, a prayer that says, I'm committed to being a learner and a doer of His Word, and not just a reader, but learn from it. Apply it. Do it. And this is what gives us strength to have conversations with other people. I don't have to convince somebody that I'm in a discussion. I don't have to convince them to, hey, you need to believe the way I believe. I'm just there to share with them truth. And may God's Spirit work in their life and help them understand the truth that I'm trying to convey to them. Whether they choose that or not, that's on them. They are not my enemy. The devil's my enemy. People are not. And we need to stop approaching people as if they're your opposition. They're not your opposition. They are people that God loved and created. And they need to hear truth. And maybe he's put you in that opportunity to share truth with them. But you need to know what truth is before you share it with others. I encourage you, church, be in God's word. Worship team, would you come forward? While they're coming forward, I, I, I just want to, this has been sitting up here the whole time. And it's like, why is there a fishbowl up on the table? Because the fishbowl reminds me of everything about God's word and, and the value of God's word. Because, see, for a fish, and here's the thing, I didn't have a live fish to put in here because if I did a live fish, what I was about to do with it next, I might get an email saying, you're cruel to animals. You know there's a law in 50 states. 
You know, so, so I don't have a live goldfish in here. I got a toy goldfish in here. But if it were a live goldfish and that fish was swimming around, maybe it would be very discontent with its surroundings. Here's why. It's very small. I, I don't know about you. I don't want to live in a house this big. I want something bigger. Matter of fact, I want, I want freedom. I want freedom to go wherever I want to go, do whatever I want to do, say whatever I want to say. I want that freedom. But I guess I got to get outside the bowl for that freedom. So that fish, I reached down and... And, and, and the fish is like, I would rather have something bigger. That's a big fish tank right there. But there's no water in it. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just let them sit there for a little bit. Now, if this was a real fish, this is where the fish is like flipping around. And everybody's like, I'm, oh, I'm so emailing him now. right? So, but that fish, as free as it is now, is dying. Because what it needs is inside the bowl, the water that gives life. The boundaries of the bowl contain the life for that fish to survive. God's word is the boundaries in our life. Within the boundaries of God's word, we find life. We find the freedom that we need. Outside of God's word, outside of his word, we're dying. We're suffocating. We need God to breathe into us. We need that life and we need to get back into it. And, and here's the problem with this world is we've got God's word that, that contains life. But some people are like, but I don't like that certain scripture that you just shared. I'm, I'm, I'm good with a lot of stuff in the Bible, but not that scripture. That's like chipping away part of this bowl. You know what happens when you chip away part of this bowl? It'll probably fracture and completely break. Or at least it's going to leak. And eventually the water will run out and that fish will die. When we take God's word and we pick and choose what we like and don't like, you might as well chip away at a fish bowl because you will not have the life that you need. Now again, why you put that there? Because maybe that will remind you that God's word is life-giving. Maybe you'll think throughout the week, next time you see a fishbowl or watch Finding Nemo Part 20, you'll sit there and think about what the freedom is that we really need. And it's found here in God's word. Would you stand, please? God's word is life-giving. The devil is tricky and he'll try to make you believe otherwise. Be solid in God's word. Be committed to God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the freedoms that we have in America. I thank you for the freedom we have to worship you, the freedom we have to sing to you, the freedom we have to maybe express our opinions and, and all these things. But God, I thank you for spiritual freedom that we are, can be free from sin and death through the ultimate sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for your words. What you have spoken, we have in written form, and we can now use those to help us as we live our life and to live it to its fullest with, with joy and happiness and, and to live lives of integrity. And, and at times, we need to be corrected. At times, we need to be put in the right direction. I thank you for your word that it does that. God, I pray that we, as a church we will become not just readers but learners and doers of your word, that we will take your word, that we will hide it in our heart so that we will not sin against you, that it will encourage us and, and delight us. And Lord, I thank you for what it brings and what it will continue to bring in our life. Help us be committed to reading it, Lord, and living it out. 
Thank you, Lord, for this morning. I pray, Lord, as we worship you in song now, may you receive all the glory. In thy name we pray, amen.